Welcome back to Pod is a Woman. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And today we're joined by Congresswoman Karen Bass, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. But before we get to that interview, there's a lot that's happened over the past week, starting with the tail end of the Republican convention. What did you guys think about the rest of the speeches, particularly Ivanka and President Trump's? Well, I don't know about you, Johanna and Alejandra, but I feel like it was the same going out as it was coming in. It was divisive and fiery rhetoric about, you know, dividing the country and breaking up communities and socialist attacks. I mean, I think Trump said um, Biden's name 41 times, and I don't think Biden even mentioned him once. So I'm really curious to see what you guys think. Yeah, no, you're right, Darian. In order to run as an incumbent and <laughs> and take no responsibility for any of the America that you've supposedly made great, and then for Ivanka to call him the people's president, when literally all day, every day, he's talking about Democrat-run cities, is just sometimes you have to be like, are we living in the same world? And then you know, all of us have stood on the South Lawn, right? We've been at events at the South Lawn. And to see the usage of the White House in that stark of a political atmosphere was just really, it had the feeling of a dictatorship and not the president of the United States of America and the house that is the people's house. Well, it's also illegal. I mean, we're talking about <laughs> that's the, the, that part. The Hatch Act, I mean, with the White House is not supposed to be used for political purposes like that. And, you know, I, I watched the speeches, but I mean, the walk out to the speeches took almost as long as the speech themselves. They used so much of the pomp and circumstance and these slow walks. Just paint this picture to your point, Johanna, that felt like you were watching a dictator in a foreign country versus what we're accustomed to. We don't stand at attention for 15 minutes while our leaders walk through hallowed hallways in these like slow um, kind of uh, parades, right? Right. We talked about his parade last week. And so I just thought it was really off-putting. And it frankly, like the hair on my arms wanted to stand up. Well, it was very theatrical to your point. And you can tell that it was produced by reality show producers and the way that it was put together. And what really, I think when we talk about hair on our arms standing up, seeing all of those people together with no social distancing and no masks with complete disregard, you've got 180,000 people in this country dead, 6 million cases of coronavirus. And this is how you throw it in Americans face. It's just, it really is a slap in the face of all of those people whose families have died, who have experienced the extreme suffering, who are impacted by the economics of a pandemic. And I just thought that that was so wildly disrespectful. And I mean, I don't know about you, but seeing the protests outside for as long as we were at the White House and there were protests for everything. Yeah. I don't ever recall anything like that. No. And I think this is what when when we talk about this both sides or whatever, a leader has the job to tamp down the rhetoric, to stop 
the division, to stop inciting, you know, these kinds of demonstrations. And that's what's so infuriating is for a president to not take any responsibility, for him to be out there saying, you know, you should worry about Joe Biden's America. We are living in Donald Trump's America. This is what he believes is great again, right? Well, last like, time I checked, Donald Trump is our current president, right? Exactly. So I I feel like I'm in the twilight zone that this right. is Joe Biden's America. I mean, what kind of spin is this? And I, I actually want to talk about another one of the speeches that were near the end of the RNC that really struck me for a different personal reason, which is Kelly McEnany. She, I don't know if you guys saw it, but she went on there and shared a very deeply personal story about her BRCA gene mutation. And for those that are listening that don't know, you know, BRCA gene mutation is a hereditary cancer mutation that dramatically raises your risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer. And a lot of folks decide that they're going to have a preventive surgery. That's what she talked about. She decided to have a preventive double mastectomy to lower her risk. Now, this is something that I had done because I also carry the BRCA gene mutation. So I, I know very firsthand what she's talking about and that, that kind of decision. But the way that she used this, this mutation status in defense of President Trump while his administration is trying to strike down the Affordable Care Act, which is mm -hmm. how most women, I'd argue all women who are going to be able to have this surgery, afford this surgery, need to do so with health insurance. It was so low and really was really floored me that she would use that in defense of him and use it in that way, largely glossing over the larger issue. I immediately went to Twitter and tweeted something out about it. And all these women started responding, you know, I can't even afford the test. Or I was only able to afford my own surgery because of the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. And I just think when it comes to health care, to be able to weaponize your pain in that way, I, th I think it was really irresponsible. And so I didn't see the entirety of her speech, Alejandra. What were some of the things that she pointed out? Well, she said that he called her afterwards. Yes. I was and <laughs> that was that was her point of how he supported her. And look, I, I think that's very nice and compassionate of him to have called her and to check on her. You know, that, that was a nice thing for him to do. But again, the larger issue is around health care. In my family, my great grandmother, grandmother, mom and two aunts have all had breast cancer before I did, because I also eventually did have breast cancer. And I watched my grandmother who didn't have health care pass away because of breast cancer and she mm -hmm. couldn't do a mammogram because she couldn't afford it. My mom had an HMO. My aunt had a PPO. I went through my own experience and all of us had such different experiences, literally in my own family because of our access. And so you can't separate the two. No. So a phone call is lovely, but when it comes to not going bankrupt because of medical bills or even being able to save your own life, because again, the thing about BRCA is in one surgery, you can lower your breast cancer risk from 85% to under 3%. Wow. That is wow. not something that should be a privilege for some. Right. 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 Well, and that's the thing is, I think I, a lot of times when my brother the last election would call and say, you know, it, he'd be like, how's how's Obamacare working for you? Right. Because it's expensive. And so for a lot of families who are, you know, trying to afford 
uh, still on the Affordable Care Act, it's still expensive. But the thing that people don't realize is that every 30 seconds, an American was going bankrupt because they didn't have the health insurance that they needed. So one of my brothers was carrying one of those junk plans. Had any of his children, had his wife had breast cancer, he would have gone bankrupt over their care. So Alejandra, I was going to ask you about this because it was, you know, it's for any of us who know, like, Trump is actively seeking to end protections for 133 million Americans with pre-existing conditions by terminating the ACA. So when she talks about him calling her, that's like, you know, <laughs> that's, that's not some, the kind of but, support but, Americans need. Right. That's the minimum. <laughs> you can, there's the support that comes with the phone call, but there's the support and action that comes with making policy changes. And he is one of the few people who can help enact that change or ensure that the Affordable Care Act is functioning and working for Americans. And that's something that he is actively working against. So it's it's complete lip service. And for her to have used that and to hold him up as a pillar of support is really just surprising to me because you would think that someone who has been through that, who has seen the pain that comes with breast cancer and the painful surgeries that you have to have, Alejandra, I can't imagine. Well, it's so vulnerable. You're never more vulnerable than when you're, you know, been diagnosed with a disease or when you have this like ticking time bomb of, again, hereditary cancer hanging over your head. The added stress of navigating healthcare costs is not something that you need to, you should be trying to factor into the equation of whether or not you have a life-saving surgery. So I didn't know I had breast cancer until after I had what I thought was a preventive surgery, just like her. And six days after my surgery, the doctor called and said, surprise, you actually already were developing breast cancer. So when you see the fact that these surgeries can essentially save your life, right. but a factor that some people might have to really consider is this isn't the right time. I can't afford it. What if I lose my insurance? What if I can't even get insurance because of my pre-existing condition? You're now affecting people's lives. Right. Well, and more, more so, right? Like lower the cost for everybody. Like the fact that you're getting tweets back from people who are saying they can't afford the very care that they're talking about on stage, that's indicative of so much of this convention, right? Uh, Can we talk about Jacob Blake? Because yeah, we have to. Yeah. I mean, my heart really breaks. And I think we were all on a text chain when I got the video. And it was one of those situations where I try to protect my own emotions when I am and what I consume visually and on social media. And the video started before I could even turn away. And I was, my stomach sank I'm to my toes I couldn't my heart aches and we are in such a as a country we're in such a vulnerable space and I think especially the black community black and brown communities are really hurting we are witnessing shooting after shooting death after death and there should be nothing natural about watching someone's last moments play out on social media that the lack of humanity and the lack of empathy that comes with having to see it, but to know that you have to see it in order to have outrage provoked. Because if people don't see it, 
then they try and excuse it away. If you don't actually have to see the visual of somebody's life slipping away from them, someone who is walking away from police, and it doesn't matter if it turns out that, you know, this investigation shows that he had a knife. It doesn't matter. You do Mm -mm. not hold a man and shoot him seven times in his back. If you don't see that that is an excessive use of force, if you don't see that shooting this man in front of his children, the trauma that comes with that, it is just, we are seeing trauma realized. That is where we are as a country. And for people to talk about anything other than that, I don't care how many warrants he had, if he had warrants, I don't care what happened. He was walking away from police. And then you turn around and let that other 17-year-old young man walk towards you. You give him water. You give him shelter. In some cases, I'm hearing that, you know, they thanked him. What kind of... What, what two realities are we living in that this is acceptable? But also, Darian, to your point, police aren't supposed to shoot guilty people either. They're not supposed to kill guilty people either. So, you know, I, I've heard that argument too about whether he had a knife or, you know, when people start digging into the background, you're kind of missing the point. What we saw with Kyle Rittenhouse, how he was able to literally just walk by. I mean, you're seeing these two different situations juxtaposed against each other within a matter of hours. Well, and that's what so frustrates me when somebody talks about law and order, because all everybody wants is law and order. They want the same protections that everybody else has. So you're not shooting someone seven times when they're walking away. And it's like, don't you tell us about law and order when this is not law and order. This is unfair, unjust. You know, I... I wonder, Darian, because you posted such a beautiful photo of your daughter who wants to be a police officer. And I have friends who are police officers. And this is, you know, good police officers don't shoot people seven times when they're walking away, right? Why are people making us think it's an either or that we either support the police or we support justice? Well, that's where we are in this sort of political narrative, it's you choose sides, you have to choose one side or the other, you can support community policing and policing that actually works for black and brown communities the way that the setup right now of police forces across the country is not meant to protect black and brown communities. That's just the bottom line of it. And so until we have a system that not only combines policing with social work and mental health and economic support that has to happen in order for us to see any sort of actual community action that you know brings together like there is no law and order in a system that doesn't work for any sort of the any part of the population and that's what people don't realize you know the civil unrest is happening because our systems are broken. It's a symptom. And people are trying to have this like circular thinking and saying like, well, no, we need to have reelect Donald Trump because of this unrest. No, it's happening because of the system and the, the rhetoric that he has put into motion. It makes zero sense. His, him getting reelected does not get us to a place where there's less violence. There's no scenario where that happens. And, you know, the person we spoke with today, Congresswoman Karen Bass, is someone who's really at the center of this conversation. So let's get to let's get right to it and hear from her, because 
she's someone who's really championed this issue and is on the front lines right now. Congresswoman Karen Bass represents California's 37th district and is the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. She previously served as the Speaker of California's 67th Assembly, making her the first black woman to serve in that role. Congresswoman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. Now, you've been an activist your whole life. I read that in high school, you used to ride your bike to UCLA and sit in on classes with Angela Davis. What are the roots of your passion for social justice? Well, I, it was really the time period in which I grew up, you know, in the 1960s, when the whole world was exploding with activism uh, on so many different levels, the independence movements that were happening around the world, the civil rights movements that were happening here. And watching all of that growing up made me very anxious to participate and get involved. Let's talk about last week. In just the last seven days, Jacob Blake was shot and paralyzed by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Two men protesting the shooting were also shot and killed. And then around 600 cars of Trump supporters descended into Portland, shooting paintballs at protesters, one of them fatally shot. So Trump tweeted that those in the caravan were, quote, great patriots. With all of this fanning of the flames, and we really still have two months until the election, I'm curious your thoughts on the fragility and the volatility of this moment and how we can best navigate it. Well, I also much must mention that a couple of days before Jacob was shot, uh, Trayford Pellerin in Louisiana was shot 11 times in his back and he was killed. So what I am concerned about is that I believe that what the president is going to do is similar to what he did in 2018, which he went around the country trying to fan the flames of racial conflict. In 2018, it was the invasion that was happening from our southern border, and we were being invaded by migrants from uh, Central America, and we needed to send troops down. This time, the invasion is internal. It's what's happening in our on our streets. I'm very concerned about the violence. Of course, I don't support the violence, but I question some of the violence because I do believe that just like that caravan, Trump's purpose, and this is so sad to say, but his purpose is to create, not to create because he's already done that, but to fan the flames, to make the racial conflicts worse so that then his message around law and order and scary people of color will has resonance. And to idea that the commander in chief, whose number one responsibility is to protect people, is actually trying to create chaos. Well, we saw a little bit of that last week with the Republican National Convention as well. And just listening to the speeches and the tone that was set therein, do you think that this is a part of the campaign strategy for the next two months? No, I think it's absolutely the campaign strategy. He's borrowing from, this is a, a revival of George Wallace's 1968 very, very racist campaign or Richard Nixon's law and order campaign. Um, I think that he does not have a message because he is in part responsible for over 180,000 deaths right. of Americans. He is not taking responsibility. He does not want to take responsibility. So he is shifting the agenda to chaos in the streets. So we will forget about the 180,000 people dead and over 6 million Americans who have been infected with the COVID virus. And yeah. to shift the agenda, 
he is using violence as a way to do it. It is this just this is a incredibly tragic moment in our history. I think you're right. It is. And on President Trump's visit to Kenosha, Wisconsin, you said, I think his visit has one purpose and only one purpose to agitate things and make things worse. You know, clearly the governor has also asked that he not visit the state, but uh, President Trump is going to go. And um, he he disregards all of that local uh, advice. Um, how do you think President Trump and the Trump campaign are actively stoking this violence. Well, but you just gave the perfect example. The governor has asked him not to come, and he's going to go anyway. Yeah. The, the mayor of Portland was very clear, please don't come, please don't send your troops, you are making the situation worse. He wants to ride in and essentially throw a Molotov cocktail with one of his inflammatory speeches to rile everyone up and to essentially encourage vigilantes. I mean, you talked about uh, Jacob being shot, and I mentioned Trayford, but if you ever want to understand the contradiction in the U.S. justice system, just look at the videotape of the 17-year-old young man, or boy, really, walking in the middle of the street with a high-powered rifle the look at walking towards mm-hmm. the police. If that had been a black man, he would have been shot the second he took one step. He walked toward the police. The police did absolutely nothing. They gave him water to drink. They sent him on on his way when they knew he had shot three people. Two of them were dead. It's it's inexcusable <laughs> is really and what it is. It is it is absolutely inexcusable. But I'm glad it was caught on tape so that people can see the conflict there there is two systems of justice in our country it's caught on tape but it's it's interesting because we still feel like we're being gaslit constantly you know you're seeing it so obvious there's it's inexcusable and then folks are saying well all of this violence it's it's because of biden and the biden riots right like how do you square these two things where you're seeing with your own eyes but then you're being told no that it's actually not what you're seeing Well, uh, Trump has spent the last three and a half years trying to convince us that what we see, what we read, what we know is not real, and that the only person that knows the truth is him. I mean, if you go back and if you study dictators, he's following the script completely. Don't believe your ears. Don't believe your eyes. Don't use your brain. Just listen to me and follow me and do whatever I say. And that's I I see when we're looking at that, we're also looking at this, you know, unprecedented number of young people from all walks of life, not just black and brown communities, being more actively engaged in the fight for social justice. And especially as it pertains to the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd. And I've even found myself, I have two young children, they're four and six, taking them to protest. Why do you think it's important for young people to use their voices at this critical juncture in our society? And do you think that that will translate over to the ballot box come November? Well, we have to work every day to make sure that it does. But given uh, as we started this conversation that I started as a young teenager being involved, I always promote young people involved being involved. And if you look at history, whenever great social change has taken place, it's because of young people, the pressure 
of of young folks. And so I have appreciated the protests. The protests have been extremely helpful. They're obviously not helpful at all when they become violent. But um, the peaceful protest that happened after George Floyd, I think, was one of the chief reasons we were able to pass the Justice and Policing Act. You know, one of the main rallying cries of, at these protests has been to defund the police. But I know that that's not something you necessarily support. So as a chief architect of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, what is a better solution in your opinion? Well, what I say is refund the communities, because the reason why we have some of the problems with policing that we do is because over the years we have defunded communities. We have cut back on social programs, economic programs, and health programs. So, And then when we do that, we expect the police to pick up the, the pieces. For example, when a person becomes a police officer, they're not becoming a police officer because they want to deal with drug addiction or mental illness or uh, homelessness. Those are social health and economic problems. But if you don't provide supports, then when things break down, then we leave it to the police. So I support very strongly refunding communities. And in the Justice and Policing Act, we do provide grants to communities to re-envision public safety. You're absolutely right about that. And in fact, even Galesburg, Illinois, my hometown, this is Johanna, you know, we we found we had people who had no uh, mental health, um, you know, resources. And so that's one of the issues that's actually plaguing our cities that that the Republicans have no solution for right now, right? Like, how do we how do we actually take that on? Well, I do think that it's the, the number one uh, issue always is to educate the public. And so I think a lot of times people, these, these changes happen slowly and people don't realize them. Like, for example, when we closed down the mental institutions, we said we were going to build community-based uh, centers for people with mental illness, and then we never did. But what we did do is build jails. And so we have in our country over the last three decades started incarcerating social health and economic problems. Now that is that is one issue. The issue of policing and the relationship with the black population has been this way since the beginning of time. And so we do have to hold police departments accountable. Police officers should not be able to uh, abuse people with complete impunity, which is why you saw that in the George Floyd murder. You see the police officer looking at the camera while he's killing George Floyd. And now he's trying to say that he actually didn't kill George Floyd, that George Floyd died of different reasons. Yeah, well, and that's the whole thing is it's it's just um, we are the great America when we are actually an inclusive America. Right. So to that point, you actually joined Stacey Abrams on August 3rd to raise the red flag of concern about the ongoing 2020 census. The Trump administration is actively seeking to end the census early, knowing that there's an undercount of minority neighborhoods, of neighborhoods that don't have access to the same you know, Internet uh, counting that everyone else does. The outcome of this census will actually change the course of representation for the next 10 years. How is that census actually tied to social justice? Well, uh, first of all, society's resources are allocated based on the census. 
And so where the undercount happens is in communities of color and uh, low-income areas. And so if the census is ended early, where you're talking about the same communities that are being ravaged by COVID, if the census ends early, then that means that we are not counted. And so the resources just won't be allocated to our areas. They get allocated. They just won't be to our area. The other way that this hurts us very seriously is our representation. So if there is an undercount, then you're going to have less members of Congress and fewer members of Congress. You can imagine how that's going to work out, especially in some of the southern states. You could literally have all white delegations. What you have now in several of the southern states is all white delegations and one Democrat who happens to be African-American. You can imagine that those Democratic seats will be lost. We'll have all Republican delegations and they will be all white. And there's no way that that is representative of those neighborhoods or those areas at all? No, I mean, I do think that there are elements in our in our country, um, speaking at the, the administration first, but beyond that, who see the demographic changing, the demographics changing in our country as our country becomes more and more brown. And I think there is a last ditch effort to rewrite the rules so that even when the demographics of our country change, the same folks will still be in power and communities of color will be further and deeper disenfranchised. Well, as we see these communities start to change, as you said, we're also seeing the efforts around the census to undermine it. And now we're seeing an unprecedented attack on the U.S. Postal Service. The president indicated that he'd veto a bill that would provide any additional funding to ensure that the post office would have much needed resources and support. How do we protect that right to mail in vote? First of all, that's after he said he would sign the bill. I mean, the reason we did the standalone bill is because he said he would sign the bill. That's one of the things that has characterized this administration is chaos. You're right. Chaos and never knowing from one minute to the next what he is going to do. Well, I have to say, you know, as someone who's moved to Los Angeles and I've seen what you've done with Community Coalition, it's really you have done so much to empower young people. And when I walked into Community Coalition as a white woman, it was the most inclusive, vibrant community um center that I have seen. And it's really like empowering Thank young you. people. <laughs> I, I just, I loved it. And I think not enough people around the U.S. know that story of what you've done to really empower people and give people the access to small business, creating small businesses and entrepreneurship, using people's voice. And it's really, it's amazing to see in person. So I just had to thank you. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that very much. And and part of the work where originally when, when we started it, the youth work was a lot based on how I grew up and the idea that other young people should have the opportunity to be politically active when they're in high school. Yeah, that's when I when I first got involved. I mean, it was poll worker uh, as a 17 year old in Illinois. They let us uh, start as poll workers. And so we had to register to vote to, you know, red or register our party. Right. Um, so that we could get involved. And it is that young activism. That is uh, what, you know, will change, you know, everything for their future. Exactly. Exactly. And and I find when you get young people involved in politics or activism, 
they learn so many skills that's applicable to so many different parts of their life. And especially young kids from uh, South Central L.A., who do not have the best experiences with authority uh, after they are trained as activists and they can go speak before the board of education or talk to their city council person, they come back feeling like, Oh, I can deal with authority. This is just fine. I can talk to my college counselor or my professor and uh, do what I need to do. And Congresswoman, as we talk about young people, um, you lost your daughter who wanted to follow you into social justice work and carry on your mantles. How does her legacy live on through the work that you're doing? Well, I think everything about the work that I'm doing, uh, if she were here along with her husband, my son-in-law, I think they would both be deeply involved. I'm sure she'd be out in the middle of the, in the middle of the protest. Uh, um, being uh, very involved. So she's always with me. I'm always thinking about uh, her as I do the work, especially uh, when I interact with younger people. I know that I feel a lot better knowing that you're there making sure that um, our rights are protected and that we right this country. So thank you so much for being with us today. Well, we can't wait to see what you're very welcome. We can't wait to see what's ahead for you, too. So much, so much change we need. Neither can I. <laughs> so much. Well, we appreciate we appreciate your time and all of the work that you're doing. Well, that was such a great interview with a congresswoman, and I think some of the things that really stuck out, she has been in service for her entire life, and one of the things we talked about is the youth and how their action in this moment is really going to be a part, a significant part of the change that we are all seeking in this country. What did you guys think? She said so much that resonated. I mean, if you look at what he's doing, like going to Kenosha, Wisconsin, without any um, one asking for him to be there. You know, she's showing us how President Trump is not the solution. But these young people could be because the only thing that's going to change the situation, right, is long term active engagement. And I think that's what people forget. Like, you know, they think something will just change just because you show up at a protest. And I think that was telling to Darian when you asked the question of like, how does this carry through to November? And she said, we have to do everything we can to make sure that it does carry through to November. And as we've talked already, voting starts this month. So it's it's starting now till November, right? That this is a question of change on the ballot. Well, do you know, one of the things that I also found interesting, and as we talk about Kenosha, we all have worked at the White House. We all have traveled with the president and we know the resources that it takes in order to make these trips happen. We know all of the background that comes behind secret service details and staff that has to be on the ground in hotels and then on the ground resources, the police force, the fire departments, the departments of transportation. So all of these people who are actively working to help bring some level of peace to Kenosha and help this community resolve the issue that it's facing and conduct the investigations that it needs to and help it rebuild, all of these resources are now being diverted so that the president can make a political play out of this man shooting. This man will never 
will likely never walk again. And this whole thing has been so politicized by Donald Trump. No, I never will walk again. And I mean, one of the things that struck me the most was when his father said that he was actually shackled to his hospital bed, like the inhumanity of the whole thing. But Johanna, to your point, you know, we, he's going to Kenosha, but he's not only is he not wanted there, the governor has asked him to not come. Yeah. Knowing I can't that it's imagine. going to make things worse. And so when you know all of this and you know mm-hmm. that he's been asked not to come, that he is not going to go there and to make any sort of, um, create any sort of peace there, then you have to think how much is he intentionally going there to actually stoke more violence. And that's something that we talked about with the Congresswoman, you know, is when you're actually trying to fan the flames, when your campaign is really hinging on the fact that there is increased violence. We have two more months until the election. And this is where we're at, where 600 cars of Trump supporters, did you guys see the videos? I I mean, 600 cars of Trump supporters pull in to Portland and start shooting paint paint balls. What do you think is going to happen here? It's awful. He really is. And, you know, as president, I look at this and think, of things from a military and veterans lens and he his job as commander-in-chief is to protect this country like that is one of your sole charges and to see him start to lose support with military service members they see it they see through all the bs and know that we're in a situation where he is putting the safety of our communities. It's not Joe Biden's America that's going to do it. It's Donald Trump's America as it stands has put this country in a place where communities don't feel safe. They don't feel safe because of what he's done and seeing people feel like because of that, they need to take the law into their own hands. They need to take, you know, defense of their homes and communities into their own hands. And what happened in Portland, what happened in Kenosha, that's a symptom of what Donald Trump has created here. I think it's the direct result of what he's trying to create. Right. What Congresswoman Bass said that was so, you know, I think important to this conversation is the services that need to be provided for cities because of funding that has been cut. And so I like the question, Alejandra, that you asked her about uh, the defund the police call, because that's another thing that people keep using and throwing and saying, oh, Democrats are trying to defund the police when that's actually not true. Right. Democrats are trying to make it so that the police are not the first line of defense for so many calls that have nothing to do with police. Police have to be there because they are the only ones on call because we have so decimated the budgets of cities. And what I think, you know, those of us who have visited Community Coalition here in Los Angeles know is that they actually created one of these vibrant centers that bring people in that give them education. And it doesn't matter your color, your religion, your, you know, anything. You are there and you are welcome. And that I think we could replicate across the United States. And we would be better for it for having, you know, really good people at the center of these communities. That's what's going to make America great. Not some red hat and paintball guns. No, it's not. No, it's not. Well, as we um, talk about other unfortunate news, um, this week we lost Chadwick Boseman at 43 to colon cancer and 
it was a shock for a lot of people because he hadn't discussed publicly his diagnosis or that he was continuing in this fight. And I just want to take a moment to recognize what he meant for so many people, whether it's his portrayal in films like the Jackie Robinson or Black Panther when he gave, you know, young black kids everywhere a superhero to look up to and showed that you know, they could be portrayed as kings. And also in his support of communities, especially for kids who um, had cancer. So I just want to give us a minute to reflect on that. I remember when the alert came up on my phone and it was like, one of those, like your stomach drops because it came out of nowhere. None of us knew he was even sick. And he had this aura about him. You know, he played these really regal roles, but he also, in hearing him speak, was just such an impressive human being, you know, such a beautiful yeah. spirit. Yeah. And so for it to be so sudden like that was really, really shocking. I was going to ask, Darian, have the girls watched Black Panther yet? The girls have watched Black Panther. <laughs> Dil Dylan thinks she's a superhero just in general. So Good. it was... <laughs> It was one of those things that was, it was just really powerful to be able to show her the power in her blackness. And we're at a time where so many communities are feeling torn down and emotionally drained. And, you know, to have, have a movie like that, especially to look to, to say, you know, you are kings and you are queens was so beautiful for them. And I'm so grateful that we had that. And mm. one of our good friends, Marissa Lee, um, wrote a piece about missing and mourning people that you didn't even know mm -hmm. and how it's okay. But he gave us a connection that, I mean, I feel like we didn't deserve, but he shared his light with us and he shared his gift with us. And we are all so fortunate to have been able to see that and to partake in that. He was so into the superhero, like Marvel universe. He watches all of them. But what I love is that he's gotten all of the costumes and he wanted the Black Panther costume. So for years, I've seen kids of color and uh, all kids, right, want to be, you know, Captain America. And what's amazing in this, you know, depiction on screen, and now Hugh has all the movie posters, so right. he has Black Panther on his wall. Right. You know, you see the diversity in our power represented. And it's, you know, it's really powerful to see so many kids come over and pick that costume. <laughs> they um, all want to be Black Panther. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who could blame him? That I mean, that movie was stunning. And I went and I watched it that very night, the night that he passed. I, I went and I um, pulled it up and watched it again. And, you know, watching it in that context was obviously upsetting, but but you can't help but just feel inspired by the end of that movie because it is so beautiful and the message behind it. And, and he said something that I actually posted on my Instagram that I, I wanted to share. He said, purpose is not rooted in career. It's not related to a job. It's related to what God put inside you that you're supposed to give to the world. And I think by, by not telling folks that he had cancer and really just like putting everything he had into this purpose and I think that he just, he left everyone with such a gift, you know, about our capacity. And, um, and I just got, I, I, I think he's really incredible. I do. Yeah, you're right. It is. His legacy will live on for generations and his purpose will have been fulfilled.
Very much so. Well, someone else that shares our sentiments about Chadwick being a, a true hero is actually our POTUS of the week, which is Kiki Palmer. She was the first Black woman to host the VMA solo this week. She dedicated the award show to him. And she started the VMAs with a call to end systemic racism. So we give all of our kudos and applause to Kiki Palmer this week, representing her community, standing in her power, and her new song, Virgo Tendencies, is like my new anthem as a fellow Virgo. So shout out to our potus of the week, Kiki Palmer. As we talk about justice this week, we have to shout out the important role the Senate plays in confirming our judges. There are 15 potentially competitive Senate seats this year, and they matter. MJ Hager is running for Senate in Texas. She's a helicopter pilot, a Purple Heart recipient, and she helped push for equal opportunity in our military. If you haven't heard of her, check her out and help her effort. That's all for today's episode. And that's a wrap on our first month of Pod is a Woman. That went super fast, guys, didn't it? It feels like yesterday we started. You know, time (laughs) flies when you're having fun, right? (laughs) We will see you all next week to continue the conversation. Thanks for tuning in. 